Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Maybe you remember the old story about the elderly couple who were having problems remembering things. And so they decided to go to the doctor to get checked out to make sure nothing was wrong with them. When they arrived at the doctor's office, they explained all the problems they were having, just trying to remember things. The doctor checked them over. He didn't see anything physically wrong with them other than the normal wear and tear that comes with age. But he made a suggestion that they should start to write things down to make notes to help them remember. With a sense of relief, they thanked the doctor and left. Later that night, while watching TV, the elderly gentleman got up from his chair. His wife asked where he was going. To the kitchen was the response. Will you get me a bowl of ice cream, she asked. No problem, came the answer as he shuffled off to the kitchen. But that wasn't good enough. She had to ask, don't you think you should write it down so you can remember it? Well, no, came the response. I can remember it. So then she asked for strawberries on top and again added, you'd better write that down because I know you'll forget. Well, with a little bit of grumpiness in his voice, he hollered back that he had it. He could remember it. She wanted a bowl of ice cream with strawberries. Not knowing when to leave things alone, his wife added, well, I also want whipped cream on top. And she said it again. I know you'll forget that. So you better write it down. Well, by now, the man was getting a little bit frustrated about this. So he snapped back at her. I can remember. I don't need to write that down. He stormed off into the kitchen. And about 20 minutes later, he finally returned, handing his lovely wife a plate filled with bacon and eggs. Startled and annoyed by this, she looked at him and said, I knew you were going to mess it up. You forgot my toast. Can you relate? I think there are probably a few of us that could use a healthy reminder of everything that was going on in our text in the book of Daniel. In our last study, we made it through verse 19 of chapter 8. Here's the great thing about our text. There's a lot to wrestle with in Daniel 8. But verses 20 through 27 covers a lot of the same material that we've already looked at in chapter 8. So what we have before us is a healthy review, a reminder of what is taking place in the text, and a chance to dig in a little deeper on some of these subjects before us. But before we read our text, just a couple of the highlights, the big points of review. Chapters 2 through 7, written primarily to the nations of the world, written in Aramaic, the universal language of that day for Babylon, Assyria, and Persia. At the start of chapter 8, Daniel switched back to using the Hebrew language, chapters 9 through 12, written primarily for the Jews. To understand chapter 8 is to recognize that in verse 1, the text teaches us this took place in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Chapter 8 is describing to us Daniel's second vision that he had. We looked at the timeline of what was taking place. That chapter 7 and 8 take place after chapter 4 but before chapter 5. Babylon is still in power. Babylon hadn't been taken over by the Medes and the Persians yet. Belshazzar was the king. Daniel was around 70 years old at the time, and about two years have passed from the vision recorded in chapter 7. The vision recorded in chapter 8 
primarily concerns itself with the nations of Medo-Persia and Greece. Specifically, it deals with how these nations would interact with the nation of Israel. Daniel 8, we begin again with verse 20. The ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Medea and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of the nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, the king shall arise having fierce features. Who understands sinister schemes? His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Recognize here in verse 20 that the angel Gabriel was talking to Daniel. And the great part of Daniel chapter 8 is that verse 20 all the way through verse 26. Explain the vision. We don't have to guess about the interpretation. It's given to us. And what I want to do as we walk our way through the interpretation is to flip back and forth between the vision in the first part of the chapter and the interpretation from Gabriel. So let's head back up to verses 3 through 5, where we looked at the ram, which is identified as Meadow Persia. Notice again, verse 3, Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last. The Medo-Persian Empire, two nations that became one. Medes were passive, Persians were aggressive. And one of the points that I've been trying to drive home is that in prophecy, horns represent power. And so the one horn represented the Medes, and the other horn represented the Persians. The second horn rising up represented the fact that the Persians became more powerful, more prominent. The Persians had an army of more than two million soldiers. The Persian king would stand in front of his army wearing the head of a ram. The armies of Persia would carry banners with pictures of rams. The ram was the symbol of Persia, testifying again to the unbelievable accuracy of this prophecy, which would be fulfilled hundreds of years after Daniel had the vision. Back down in verse 20, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel, the horns represent the kings of Medea and Persia. In verse 21, Gabriel is about to tell Daniel about the male goat, but before he does, go back to verse 5 again. Verse 5 teaches, And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. But then notice verse 21, the male goat is the kingdom of Greece and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. This was a prediction of Alexander the Great. He was enraged with the Persians 
and quickly took over Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, and much more in just a few years. The Persians couldn't stop him. In chapter 11, Alexander is referred to as a mighty king, able to do according to his will. Back when we looked at verses 6 and 7, we saw the goat and the ram, or in other words, Greece and Medo-Persia. We saw the prophecy of them doing battle, and the end result would be that Alexander the Great would defeat Medo-Persia. Notice verse 8 again. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Here we have the prediction of the death of Alexander the Great and his four generals dividing up his kingdom. Down in verse 22, this is the interpretation given, telling us of the four kingdoms that would come from Alexander's empire. These four kingdoms never had the military power like they did when Alexander was around. This man was a leader. He was one of the greatest military rulers of history. Alexander was able to keep his army together for 11 years, constantly battling on foreign lands, taking over the greatest amount of territory ever conquered by one ruler. Take another look at verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. Before we move on, we need to look carefully at the context and we need to wrestle with some basic rules of Bible interpretation before we can establish who's being talked about in this verse. A key phrase is at the beginning of verse 23 and in the latter time of their kingdom. We've talked quite a bit in our study about a man by the name of Antichus Epiphanes. One of the four generals of Alexander the Great was a man by the name of Seleucus who took over the eastern portion of Alexander's empire. Eventually, this man, Atticus, took over this eastern section of the Greek empire. In 171 BC, the high priest of the temple was murdered. This really was the beginning of the end of peaceful relations between Antichus and the Jews. A line of illegitimate priests took his place. In December of 167 BC, the sacrifices in the temple were stopped by force. A Greek altar was erected in the temple, and during this time, Epiphanes issued coins that he had made that were titled Epiphanes. And on the coins were the claims that he had divine honors. Our coins say, in God we trust, his said, God manifest, and he was pictured wearing a crown. After his death, a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus led an effort to cleanse the temple of God. They had to tear out the false idols and cleanse the temple. Judas Maccabeus led them through this. They pulled down the heathen altars that were in the temple. A new priesthood was once again established to minister in the temple. Judas repaired the courts. Judas replaced the altar of incense. He replaced the table of the bread of presence, the golden lampstands, and in the end, they reinstituted the temple worship and the sacrifices to God. To celebrate, they had something called the Feast of Lights, also known as the Feast of Dedication, known to us today as Hanukkah, which, of course, the Jews still celebrate to this day. The rededication was celebrated for eight days, and so this next December, recognize that this is what our Jewish friends are still celebrating the cleansing and rededication of the temple after Antichus Epiphanes died. Hanukkah just simply means dedication. But now as we make our way to verse 23, we have to ask the big question, does this text refer to 
Antiochus doesn't refer to the Antichrist, or does verse 23 and on somehow refer to both? Let me give you an illustration. In our backyard, we have a hill that is on the north side of our house. Our garden is up there, and we refer to it as the North Slope. Now, let's just say I make two separate predictions about our two daughters. Hannah just turned 15 last week, and Annika, better known as Doodles, is three. My first prediction is that when Hannah turns 16, she will go up our hill. What do my words mean? Exactly what I said. When Hannah is 16, she will go up the hill. And then I come along and make a second prediction that my second daughter, Doodles, will also go up the hill when she is 16. Again, what is the meaning of my words? When Doodles turns 16, she will go up the hill. And if you haven't ever seen my daughters, my daughters look like one another. One would be going up the hill in about a year from now, soon. But the other one, Doodles, the fulfillment of this second prediction is further off, another 13 years away. And it would be wrong for me to say that when Hannah goes up the hill that this was fulfilled by Doodles. And it would be wrong for me to say that when Doodles does go up the hill, that this was already fulfilled by Hannah. But that is exactly what a lot of men try to do when it comes to prophecy. Hannah and Doodles are two separate people, and I gave two separate predictions. But now, let's take it a step further. Let's just say I tell you that Hannah will go up the hill when she is 16, one year away. And again, I tell you that Doodles will go up the hill when she is 16, about 13 years away. But this time I say when Hannah goes up the hill next year, it's going to look a lot like it will 13 years from now when Doodles goes up that same hill. And I tell you that Hannah is a picture of what it will look like when Doodles goes up the hill. There's a picture there, a foreshadowing of what will come that was intended by the author of their prediction. And you see, that's the key, a picture there that was intended by the author of the prediction. Not one we bring to the text, but one that was intended by God. We refer to this as typology in the Bible. So here we go. Here's how this fits into Daniel 8. It is a mistake to say that Antiochus was a partial fulfillment of this text, and that one day the Antichrist will completely fulfill it. That is misunderstanding the definition of what partial fulfillment is. It's also a mistake to say that this text has a dual fulfillment. But that does not mean there is not a picture here of the Antichrist. The text of Daniel 8 was a prediction about Greece and Antiochus Epiphanes. A quick glance at history shows that Antiochus fulfilled all of the prophecies given here in chapter 8. In our illustration, this would be Hannah going up the hill. She fulfilled the prediction. And no, for the record, I'm not comparing either of my daughters to the Antichrist. Every illustration breaks down at some point, and there you have it. Well, Daniel 8 has a literal historical fulfillment that has already come and gone. But there's some definite, obvious foreshadowing of the Antichrist that is to come and persecute the nation of Israel. And so, as we walk our way now through this text, we get a glimpse of what is to come by looking at the prediction and the fulfillment found in Antiochus. Think of Antiochus in chapter 8 as a picture, a foreshadowing of the coming Antichrist. And it's my belief that God fully intended this foreshadowing, this picture, to be there for us. 
So starting in verse 23, we see the text records in the latter time of their kingdom, literally the latter portion, meaning a clear reference to the latter portion of the rule of the four divided kingdoms of Alexander's empire seen in verse 22. Look at the next part, when the transgressors have reached their fullness. Just to give you a sense of the text, let me paraphrase this for you. It's like Gabriel was saying, when sinful actions have reached a point where God cannot permit them to go further without bringing punishment. That's the big idea of what is being said. And the idea is that the transgressors are the Jews themselves who continue to sin. And they reached the point where God would not allow it anymore. So even though they came back from captivity during the reign of Medo-Persia, they continued in sin. And this brought about the persecution they suffered at the hand of Antichus Epiphanes. A king would arise, Daniel tells us, with fierce features, stern-faced. One who would understand sinister schemes, a deceitful man, a perfect description of Antichus, and an even better picture of the Antichrist yet to come. In verse 24, we are told that his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. The historical records do show that Antichus did have unusual strength and power. It came from Satan. And we learn from Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 that the coming of the lawless one will be according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Both men empowered by Satan. Next, Daniel records that this king will destroy fearfully. He will prosper and thrive. He will destroy the mighty and also the holy people. And verse 25 goes on to teach, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. Antichus was known to be deceptive. He fooled people just like the Antichrist will. Antichus was known as a persecutor of God's people. He was known as a proud man, a man who loved himself and how great he thought he was. But take a look at the next phrase. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. And when you look at the wording used, it's clear that this refers to Christ. Christ was active in the life of Israel. This we have shown from the word of God. The son of God protected, guided, and served the people of Israel. He was present as the angel of the Lord and the defender of Israel. In other words, don't see the reference to Christ and assume that this means that Antichus could not and did not fulfill this text. It actually shows the unity of the word of God. Antichus hated the things of God. His persecution of the Jewish people was horrific, and he certainly rose up against the Lord. Antichus felt that he was the earthly embodiment of the powers of heaven. This was the man who felt it was his responsibility to rid the world of the Hebrew faith, forbidding the Hebrew people from circumcising their children, killing anyone who would go against him, and killing anyone found with a copy of the Hebrew scriptures. And the Antichrist, as we know from Revelation 19, will seek to stand against Christ when the Lord comes again. The end of verse 25, but he shall be broken without human means. The king would be killed, but not by human hands. Antichus received word that the Maccabees had defeated his armies and had taken control of Israel once again. Antichus was shocked by this news. He fell ill, and then he died. One report says that he was in Babylon and that right before he died, he said, 
I remember the evils that I did at Jerusalem. I perceive, therefore, for this cause, I perish. And then he just died. Some say his death was because of a fall. Some say cancer, worms, or sickness. But all agree that he died, just as predicted in verse 25, not at the hands of men. Revelation 19 teaches that, again, the Antichrist will not be done away with by men. Christ will destroy the armies of the Antichrist and cast him into the lake of fire. Verse 26, Gabriel still speaking, and the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. This refers back to verse 14, 2300 evenings and mornings, a description of the time frame of the Jewish persecution under the rule of Antichus. In other words, Gabriel was saying the vision was about the period of time, the 2300 evenings, mornings, when Antichus would oppress the Jews. Again, a prediction of Antichus and Greece. Gabriel told Daniel the vision was true. It would come to pass. And then he told Daniel to seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future, not to keep the vision a secret, but the idea is to preserve the message that God had revealed to him. Keep the record of this vision. Roll up the scroll and protect it, keeping in mind that Daniel wrote this down centuries before Antichus walked this earth. But look at the impact it had on Daniel. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Daniel fainted, was sick for days, and then returned to working for King Belshazzar. Keep in mind here that Babylon was still in power. For Daniel, he had to wrestle with the revelation of God that Persia and Greece would take over most of the world. Daniel was told that the sacrifices in Jerusalem would end, but at this point, the temple hadn't even been rebuilt and the city was in ruins. He concludes the chapter by telling us that even though he went back to service to the king, this vision left him astonished and wrestling with questions about the vision he had received. In the summer of 2002, Tulsa, Oklahoma had a man do the unexpected. According to local TV news in Tulsa, Edward McBride kicked in the door of a home. He filled up a duffel bag full of electronics. But when he fled the house, a man working next door saw him and called 911. The police arrived as McBride was running towards the Arkansas River. And then he jumped in, still holding on to the bag of electronics. Another man, Mike Branson, happened to be fishing in the river. He saw the police go in after McBride. Mike testified they pulled their stuff off, yelling at him to come back, but the guy just stayed out there. The officers got in the water. McBride went down once or twice, but he didn't come back up because he refused to let go of the stuff he had stolen. And so he sank to his death. Here was a man willing to face death before he would let go the things that never belonged to him. The difference between us and Daniel is the type of fear we have. Daniel was astonished and overwhelmed, afraid for the people of God and jealous for God, wanting God to be worshipped in his temple by his people. But we tend to be afraid because we're holding on to the wrong things. If you understand the prophecy of God's word, then you understand just how foolish it is for us to hold on to the material things that we so often cling to. Listen, Antichus was a wicked man, but he was small scale. The full scale version of this wicked man is coming. 
The Antichrist will be intelligent, shrewd, powerful. He will offer a false sense of peace, and once he lures the nations in, he will destroy people, even attempting to stand up to the Christ. Satan will be his mentor. Satan will be the source of his power. And most terrifying of all, the Antichrist will prosper. He will seem to have the answers to the world's problems. Nations will trust him. And midway through the tribulation, his true purpose will become known. Making war with Israel and the people that will have come to salvation by faith through the ministry of the two witnesses and the 144,000. Satan hates the people of God. He always has. The Antichrist will hate the people of God, but persecution of God's people will be his undoing. Be thankful for the promise that Jesus will deliver us from the wrath that is to come. Cling to what matters. Hold on to the truth of God's word. Hold on to our hope in Christ and hold on to the one that loved us so much that he came to die just so we could be saved. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.